I'd like to invite everyone to stand for scripture. Thank you. Today's reading is Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will sacrifice, I'm sorry, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning once again. Uh, Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that you will be glorified, that you will speak to your people and those who have not yet made that decision to follow you. I pray, Lord God, that you will be glorified in all that is said and done. Let them hear you and not me. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, Really good friends with Pastor Nick and Gina and Pastor Adam. And uh, I appreciate you guys having me here this morning. And um, I don't know, is anyone in here a boxing fan? I'm not personally, but is anyone here a boxing fan? Okay. So the first boxing match that I ever watched was about two years ago, 2017. And uh, it was the match between Floyd Mayweather, boxing champion, right? And uh, Conor McGregor, who's a UFC champion. And the reason why I decided to watch the match, even, not, even though I'm not a boxing fan, is because of the trash talking. For months, they kept talking back and forth, and Connor says this, and Floyd says that. And I'm like, I love a good trash talk match. So I'm like, I got to watch it now, because I got to see if Connor can back up what he's saying. So when the match started, I was impressed. Connor McGregor came out, and that dude was landing blows on Floyd. And I was like, oh, snap. Floyd may actually lose to this dude, right? And he, Connor's never boxed before. But then something changed. Connor started to get kind of tired, started to get a little sluggish. And Floyd Mayweather turned it on. He showed why he's called Money Mayweather. And that dude whooped up on Connor, beat him in the 10th round. And I'm like, dang, now I see why people like boxing. This was exciting. So the fight lived up to the hype. But the fight was also really educational. Here's why it showed me that at times we can be confident. When we really shouldn't be confident, just like Connor, he was a little too confident and he got humbled. Right. And when it comes to confidence, nowhere is that confidence most important than when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our eternal destiny. For instance, there's some people right in the world who they're pretty confident that them and God are good. They feel that them and God are at peace. They feel like, you know, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to enter heaven one day. And yet, they shouldn't have that confidence, at least not yet. On the flip side, there are Christians, followers of Jesus, who doubt that them and God are good. 
They doubt that they're going to enter heaven one day. And they should actually be the ones that have confidence. And this is what our passage this morning is speaking to us about. Paul takes these two really important topics, our relationship with God and our eternal destiny, and he grounds it and he roots it in God's abundant love for us. So this morning, my prayer for all of us is really simple. My prayer is that every single one in this room would leave more confident and assured of where they stand with God this morning, of their eternal destiny, and of God's overflowing love for them. That's my prayer this morning. So our three points are simple. God's love is radical. God's love is rescuing. And God's love is cause for rejoicing. So our first point, God's love is radical. Uh, in America, we, we've really bought into this idea that in order for us to change our destinies, to, to change the situations we find ourselves in, we really just got to try harder. You know, like the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. It's very American ideal, right? And uh, this mindset has actually impacted the way that some see Christianity, right? Some think that Christianity is basically a self-help model with just a little bit of Jesus and God sprinkled on top. Um, I remember being a freshman in high school, Patrick Henry, uh, down by San Diego State, and uh, I was a freshman, and I'm at school early in the morning, and I'm helping my Spanish teacher with some stuff, and somehow we got on the topic of religion. And she goes, yeah, Anthony, I'm, I'm a Christian. I go, oh, that's great. And she goes, yeah, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> like, uh, but I didn't say nothing because, I mean, I needed that A, you know what I mean? So I'm like, I'm going to come back sophomore year and talk to you about that. But uh, a lot of people really, truly believe the idea. But yet, in verse 6, Paul blows that entire idea out the water. Look at what he writes. He goes, for while we were still weak. I actually like how the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts it. It goes, for when we were utterly helpless. Paul is writing to these Roman Christians Right. And Rome, just like us here in America, they valued power in all of its forms. They, they, they wanted it. They, they fought for it. Right. And whether we like it or not, all of us are impacted. We're all affected by our culture. And because that's true, none of us likes to think of ourselves as weak and helpless. We fight against that idea. We do everything in our power not to feel weak. We do everything in our power not to feel helpless. And yet, Paul, that's what he's laboring to show us. He's laboring to convince us that you are weak. You are helpless. I mean, before we arrive in Romans chapter 5, Paul basically in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, this is Paul's thesis. This is what Paul is saying. He goes, listen, every single person knows that God exists. There are no such thing as atheists. In reality, everyone knows that God exists. Yet because of our sin, not only do we reject him, but we reject his good ways of living. And because we reject him and his standard, we bring judgment on ourselves. Uh, Paul is basically telling us that spiritually speaking, you guys have no bootstraps to pull yourselves up by. And he says, even if you did have bootstraps, you're so weak, you can't do it. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that we were dead because of our many sins and disobedience. That's Paul's thesis. Before he gets to this glorious passage that we're going to be looking at, he first shows the bad news of who we are outside of Jesus Christ. Before becoming Christians, each and every one of you, me included, we were spiritually weak, spiritually dead, and utterly helpless. But thanks be to God, that's not how the story ends. That's not where it ends. Look at the end of verse 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So listen, I know this is the first time any of you guys have really seen me, listened to me, uh, you've met me. So let me just give you a detail about me. I'm a huge nerd. Huge nerd. Like superheroes, Harry Potter, Star Wars. I heard amen. I heard that. Yes, yes. Amen. There we go. Right? Pastor Nick just mentioned the Avengers. I'm a big time nerd. I mean, I just went to Comic-Con with my son dressed head to toe in a Spider-Man spandex. I have pitched Peter B. Parker. Yes, yes. From, from, so anyway, all that to say, I'm a huge nerd, right? Now, listen, I was going to use an illustration from Avengers Endgame today, but I know not everyone in here has probably seen it. You've seen it? Praise God for you. So, right? So you've seen it. I like you. But not everyone has seen it, right? So I don't want to spoil it like I did for my pastor. But what I can say is that it's back in theaters, so get your lives together and go see the movie today, right? But I was sitting at home, and I was thinking of every superhero movie I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of them. And the theme is basically the same. The details differ, but the plot is basically the same, right? The hero fights the villain in order to save the good and innocent people. That's basically what superhero movies are. However, when we look at Romans 5, 6 through 11, this story of our hero is unlike any other story we've ever been told or ever watched. The theme is different. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says that most people aren't willing to die for a morally decent person, although some may be willing to die for a really good person. But generally speaking, that's, it's pretty rare, right? But then Paul brings out the shocker in verse 8. He goes, but God shows his love for us in that while, not after, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you guys to imagine. Imagine if Batman died for the Joker, or the Jedi died for the Sith, or Harry Potter died for Lord Voldemort. The world wouldn't know what to do with a story like that. Why? Because that's not how superhero movies and stories work. The hero does not die for the villains. And yet Jesus Christ, according to Paul, he dies not for good and innocent people, because guess what? None of us in this room, me included, are good and innocent in our, own, in our own natural state. We're not good. It says that Jesus died for bad and for guilty people. In fact, look at verse 10. Verse 10 calls us enemies of God. Not just that we were indifferent, we hated him. If we could have, because of our sin and our hatred, we would have ourselves put him to death. We are haters and enemies of God before we became Christians. So what is the theme of this passage? The theme is that the hero 
dies for his villains. He dies for his enemies. And in doing so, he proved God's amazing love for you and I. I love the way the late evangelist Billy Graham put it. He says, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. We say, God, prove to me that you love me. And God says, I did. My son died for you. That's the proof that I love each and every one of you. This radical love of God goes against the way that the world sees and does love. For example, how many of you here are parents? Now, I'm going to ask you a question. And this is not rhetorical. I want you to answer back. But I don't want any sanctified Christian answers. I want you to keep it real this morning. How many of y'all have been on aisle three of Target and your kids have a massive meltdown? I'm talking about snot running down their nose, people looking, they're screaming, spitting, biting, right? Right? Now, let me ask you, when that happens, what do you guys want to do at that point? And I don't want Christian sanctified answers. What do you guys want to do at that point? You want to choke the snot out of them. I'll say it. You guys don't want to say it. I'll say it. I'm like, dude, be quiet. People are looking. And I'm like, hey, get to the core. So all that to say, that's what, that's what you want to do. Let's keep it real this morning, right? Christian or not, that's what you want to do. You want to discipline them. But I want to flip it. In terms of us and God, we are the snot-nosed, spitting, biting, tantruming children. That's us. And instead of God punishing us, he throws us this huge party. Imagine you guys, your kid is doing that. You wouldn't want to give your kid a party at that point. You wouldn't want to buy him toys and presents. But God, even in our sinful rebellion, throws us a party, gives us presents. He gives us love. And because we don't know what that, we, we, we don't understand that type of love because we don't really operate in that type of love. We don't see that type of love regularly displayed. It shocks us when we see that because we're not used to it. And yet, that's what God does. So this morning, if you're a Christian, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that God was not reluctant to save you. Sometimes we think that God was unwilling. He's sitting in heaven angry at us, right? And he's unwilling to save us. And Jesus has to come before him and say, well, come on, Father. I, I mean, I just died for them. Please forgive them. And God is like, fine, Jesus, I'll forgive him. But that's how we see God sometimes. We really think that God is the unwilling person and Jesus has to convince him. No. The scripture says that it was the radical love of God that motivated him to send Jesus for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It was the love of God that drove him to send his son to redeem us. And then when we repented, when we put our faith in Christ, God welcomed us home with a huge party with presents. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 15, verse 10. He says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's good news. And this brings us to our second point this morning. God's love is rescuing. In verse 9, Paul writes that we've already been justified by the blood of Jesus, right? And this fact, this truth is essential to his argument in verses 9 and 10. But what does it mean to be justified, right? That's a churchy word. It's a great word. But what does that really mean? 
you know, when I'm talking to non-Christians about Jesus, um, I'll use this example to explain what it means to be justified. And perhaps you guys can use it when you're talking to non-Christians about Jesus. But um, the example I use is, let's say that there's a, a couple on a date, right? The man has a really nice sports jacket on and the woman has a nice black dress on. It's night. And the, the man, seeing that his date is cold and him being a gentleman, he takes his jacket off and he wraps it around her shoulders. Now, when he does that, whose jacket is it, guys? Is it her jacket or is it still his jacket? It's still his jacket. But because he wrapped it around her shoulders, she's no longer cold. But now he is. In a greater way, Jesus takes our sin on himself on the cross. And then for those who put their trust in him, he he wraps us, so to speak, in his coat, his jacket of perfection, of righteousness, of innocence, of holiness. So that when God looks at you this morning, if you're in Christ, if when God looks at you both now and when you die and you stand before him, he doesn't see you and your sins. He sees you wrapped in Jesus's righteousness. He sees his son. So what does it mean to be justified? It means that you are declared legally righteous and innocent in his courtroom because of what Jesus did for you and because of who he is. And then Paul, he 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 goes on to say that much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You guys, what does Paul mean by the wrath of God? Ultimately, Paul's speaking of hell. And I know that we, we try to do everything we can to avoid talking about hell because it's uncomfortable. But the thing of it is, is that God in his love has inspired this mention of hell right here. Hell shows us the greatness of God's love. We don't see the good news as truly great until we see the backdrop of our sin and what we deserve. I want to ask you guys a question. This is not to beat anyone up. This is just a simple question. When is the last time you not just invited someone to church? That's great. But when is the last time you actually opened your mouth and shared not just the good news of God's love, but the bad news of sin and his wrath? We cannot be faithful to Christ if we keep things back from people. That is being unfaithful to our Lord. Hell is real. Hell is terrifying. And there are people even sitting here, possibly, who are heading there. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your loved ones, some your children, some your spouse. If they do not know Jesus Christ, you guys, I cannot say it any other way. I can't sugarcoat it. This is what the scriptures say. They're heading to hell because of their crimes against a holy God. And that should terrify us. That should drive us to our knees to pray for them and then drive us to get up from our knees and then to go to them and share the truth, good and bad news, with them. Just like Paul does here. And outside of our relationship with Christ, you guys, each and every one of us was headed there ourselves, me included. That was our eternal destination at one point. And yet the good news this morning is that Paul says that believers will be saved from this wrath of God. 
So some here may be saying, well, how can I be sure I'm going to escape the judgment of God, this wrath of God? How do I know I won't go to hell? This is the good news this morning. Your assurance that you will escape that wrath that will come one day is not based on how good you're doing. How many times, let's be honest, how many times do we think, oh, I know I'm, I know I'm good with God. Why? Because I had a good week. I read my Bible. I obeyed God pretty well. But then the next week when we fail miserably, oh, I really don't know where I stand with God. You guys, your assurance that you will escape the wrath of God is based on your past justification. If God has taken his wrath and he pours it on his son, the wrath that was meant for you and me, and he pours it on Christ, when you stand before God, God's going to say there's no wrath left for you because my son drank every last drop. And that's why he said, it is finished. Your debt paid in full by my blood. All God has for you now is grace, mercy, and love because I took his anger. I took his wrath. I took his judgment in your place. Redemption, is that good news today for you? Seriously, is that good news? Is it good news to know that you can face life and death confident that God will not send you to hell because Jesus took the hell you deserved and I deserved on that cross? If that's good news, then that should drive us to glorify and praise him because that gives us confidence This gives us every confidence to live boldly before God in this life and to stand before him in death. That is good news. Uh, Youth, young adults, teenagers. How many of you guys have, uh, you know your report card is coming out and you're a little nervous because you don't know what grade you're going to get, right? And you know your parents are waiting for the report card and you're like, I don't know what grade I'm going to get in this class or multiple classes, right? You're a little nervous because you don't know. But what about you adults? It's time for your uh, job review with your boss. Hey, come to my office, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. We're going to go over your job performance. And you're a little nervous because you're like, I don't know if this is going to be a promotion, a demotion. Will I have a job in two weeks? What's going on? Right? The, The fact that you don't know gives us anxiety, gives us fear. And yet the most important judgment, the judgment of God over our lives, has already been given to us. God has already said your, your, your life review, you passed it. Your final report card is an A+. Why? Because Jesus took our bad grade and our bad review on the cross, and then he says, I'm going to give you instead my good life review. I'm going to give you my good grade. The good news of Christianity is that God treated Christ on the cross as if he lived our life. And then God turns around and treats us as if we lived Jesus's perfect life. That's good news. And that's why now, guess what? We can stand before God and we know that we relate to God, not based on how we're doing. You don't relate to God this morning based on how you did last week. You relate to God this morning solely based on Jesus's life and his work for you. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what drives us to love and to serve. And then in verse 10, Paul argues that if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to the father. Or I like the way the NLT puts it. It says that uh, our friendship with the father was restored by the death of Jesus. 
then how much more will we be saved by his life now that we've been reconciled? Let me break it down for you. In other words, it's this simple. Jesus Christ, this brown-skinned Middle Eastern man, has risen from the dead. When people ask me when I go to college campuses and they go, how do you know Christianity is true? So many times Christians will say, well, I know because he lives in my heart. Well, guys, Mormons say the same thing. They go, you show me, you tell me how you know Christianity is true. And this is what I tell them. Christianity is true, not based on anything about me. It doesn't, it's not based on how I feel or even Jesus living inside of me. The truth of Christianity, it rests on one fact. Jesus Christ rose from the dead historically in time, space, in history. That that man is no longer in a grave, rotted away, but he rose with all power, authority, and victory in his hands, and he ascended to the Father 40 days later. And right now, right now, this second, Jesus Christ is seated beside his Father, and he prays, and he intercedes for you. So how can we as Christians be eternally damned? How can we be lost if Jesus lived and he died and he rose and now he lives forevermore praying for us? You guys, real talk, God's love in Christ, it rescues us from his wrath. That's good news. It rescues us. And this leads us to our third and final point this morning. God's love is cause for rejoicing. How many of you guys have a, let's say, a birthday or Christmas? You guys have ever gotten a gift that you really, really liked, right? Like you, you've been wanting it. You've been hinting towards your spouse or your parents like, hey, this is really cool. And you, you're like, I hope they give me this gift. And then you open up the presents and then you're like, yes, I got the gift, right? You guys, that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying In this passage that God has given us so many amazing, wonderful gifts because he loves us. And our response to that should be one of rejoicing. Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You guys, when discussing this verse, I was talking to another PCA pastor, Alex Shipman in Alabama, and he said something and I had him repeat it. We were at me. uh, I was at General Assembly with Pastor Nick. And uh, if you don't know what General Assembly is, it's basically where all the theological nerds get together and debate about stuff that shouldn't be debated about. And um, we sit around and take forever and make a decision. That's General Assembly. And uh, he said this. And I was like, dude, you got to say it again because I need to write it down. Because I'm putting that in my sermon. It's dope. This is what he said. He goes, who were you before God saved you? Enemies. He turns enemies into sons and daughters, into kids, not the help, not servants, but sons and daughters. If that doesn't move you to praise and worship God in spirit and truth, then you don't understand Christianity. You guys, first John three, one says, what manner of love is this that we should be called children of God for that is what we are. You know, oftentimes we I really think that we think ultimately speaking, Christianity is a religion of lament and of sorrow. And of course, lament and sorrow has its rightful place in Christianity. But ultimately, Christianity is a religion of joy, of rejoicing. And I'm going to say something else. Christianity is a religion of partying. 
What do you think we're going to be doing for eternity? Being bored? No, that's not happening. We're going to be partying with the triune God with each other. That's what Christianity is. And you may be saying this morning, well, how can I rejoice? How can I party? How can I be so happy when life around me is crashing, when people are dying and there's wars and there's all these horrible things? The reason why we can rejoice is because our rejoicing is not based in our circumstances. It's based on the fact that we were reconciled to God. Our friendship with God was restored through Jesus Christ. That's why you and I can rejoice today. And I want to take you back real quick just to verse six. Paul says that at the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly. God is the master planner. God is the master architect of your life. Before time even began, he set into motion his rescue plan to save people from every every tribe, tongue and language. You know, uh, there's a saying, I grew up in the black church. There's a saying in the black church that as I've gotten older, I've started to appreciate more. It says, God may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. How many times do we accuse God of being late? God, how do you not see what I'm going through? You guys, if God has already done the greatest thing for us, sent his son at the right time, then why do we doubt he's going to come through for us in all of the lesser details of our lives. At the right time, our on-time God sent forth his son so that he could rescue us, so that he can adopt us as his children, as Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says. So therefore, as verse 11 says, and I'm going to read it from the NLT, now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So as I close this morning, I want to ask you, who are you this morning? Are you a Christian doubting your relationship with God? Are you doubting where you're going to go when you die? If that's you, I want to say look to the cross. Look to the cross where Jesus died drinking every last drop of God's anger against you and against us. And in doing so, he proves God's amazing love for each one of us. Look to his resurrection where he rose with all power and now he sits at God's right hand and he prays for you. He prays that you'll endure to the end. He knows what you need and he prays for you. And here's the good news. Every single prayer that he utters, God answers affirmatively. He says, yes, I'll answer that prayer. Look to the cross and the empty tomb and be confident and assured of God's love for you, your relationship with him and your eternal destiny. And for those who have not yet become Christians, you're sitting here and you're saying, I really don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what's going to happen the minute my heart stops and I stand before the creator of the entire universe. You don't have to go to hell. God loves you. I don't know who you are in this room. But God can go from being your enemy to your father, from a stranger to a friend. Turn from your sin this morning and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. The one who lived for you, died for you, and rose again for you. And if you have any questions about that, please come up and talk to one of the elders or Pastor Nick or Pastor Adam or myself. We would love to discuss this more with you.
Redemption. Based on everything Paul has written, we can honestly and truly say that God's love for us is radical. It rescues us, and it gives us every reason to rejoice this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you. We love you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. We thank you that at the right time you sent your son to die for us while we were your enemies. We thank you that our eternal destination, our eternal address can change in the blink of an eye because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, may your people be edified. May those who don't know you be saved. May today be their day of salvation. And Lord, may we walk forth from this place and into next week assured and confident of who we are in your eyes. We're your people. Where we're going to go, we're going to spend eternity with you in the new heavens and new earth and in your overflowing love for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.